Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. History doesn't have to be boring, buttoned up, or inaccessible. And it certainly didn't end in 1945. It belongs to all of us, and we share and add to it every day. Welcome to the History of Go-Go podcast, where I interview interesting guests, cover a motley crew of topics, and it's a place where you can sit, think, and drink all at the same time. I'm your host, Rob Mellon. My guest today is award-winning writer of nonfiction, fiction, and screenplays, Dr. Kristen Swenson. Her academic background is in religious studies, especially biblical studies, and most especially the Hebrew Bible and Old Testament. She taught religious studies for over 15 years at Virginia Commonwealth University, but now is a dedicated full-time researcher and writer. She has written several books, including Living Through Pain, Psalms and the Search for Wholeness, Bible Babble, Making Sense of the Most Talked About Book of All Time, and God of Earth, Discovering a Radically Ecological Christianity. Her most recent work, A Most Peculiar Book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible, was published this year, and that will be our topic of discussion today. Of the book, The Church Time says, rather than dismiss the Bible, As an outlandish or irrelevant relic of antiquity, Swenson leans into the messiness full throttle, making ample room for discomfort, wonder, and weirdness. A most peculiar book guides readers through a Bible that will feel to many brand new. And we are very pleased to have the author with us today. Welcome, Dr. Swenson. Thanks, Rob. Please call me Kristen. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. This is a great book, by the way. Thank you. A most peculiar book is the... <laughs> <laughs> I meant that about the Bible, you know, Rob. Oh, oh, yes, so my that's own right. Book yes. is, I admit that my own might be a little on the peculiar side as well. Yes. Kristen, it is tradition here to accompany the conversation with a special brew. Today, we have Experience Paradise American IPA from the Holy City Brewery, of North Charleston, South Carolina. Holy City has become a community hub in North Charleston, and the city of Charleston itself has developed a very serious craft beer culture. Remember, the best way to enjoy the podcast is with one of our featured brews. Also, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to the podcast. It's the only way to get the newest episodes right away. And to all of the listeners from over a thousand cities from around the globe, I have to say thank you. Your interest in this podcast is what makes it possible. And now, I raise my Experience Paradise American IPA very high. And to all of the interesting characters and stories in the Bible, especially that talking donkey, I say cheers. Do you ever think about the fact that if you would have leveled these types of criticisms at the Bible or even interpretations, not even a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, you might have been burned at the stake. Many people were. Yeah. So to propose the kinds of things that I do, 
I still do with a little bit of caution. <laughs> and really what I'm doing, of course, is just showing what's already there in the Bible and talking about what is there in the Bible. But you're right. There are lots of folks who don't want to recognize or don't want to admit the Bible's strangenesses, the things that are strange in it, the ways in which it disagrees with itself, for example, or how it doesn't maybe complete a whole story. Sometimes we get parts of stories or that it has a different order of books for different religious traditions can be. Even that can be a little off-putting for people, but especially it's those um, disagreements within it that make people uncomfortable, especially people of faith, or when it proposes things that we know just in our, our, the gut of our human selves is not appropriate to propose, for instance, a kind of wholesale genocide, which we find within the book of Joshua is anathema to what we know to be goodness of humanity. (laughs) Um, But to recognize those things makes people uncomfortable. But there they are. They're in the Bible. And what I want to do, want to suggest, is not that that is a failing or a fault of the Bible at all, but on the contrary, actually, that these strangenesses, I call them, within the Bible— None of the things that are strange about the Bible, which are partly a function of the fact that it's really old and alien to us in a lot of ways as an ancient text, that those may be its greatest gifts to us. Because I think that those things, they make us sit up and take notice, and they make us start asking questions and engaging with the text and engaging with one another in conversation about the text. And I think that is of tremendous value. And so those things, um, and now I'm lumping them all together that are quite different, the ways in which it disagrees with itself, for example, the ways in which some texts we find abhorrent, rightly so. Right. I'm going to ask you about some of those. <laughs> yeah. And some of the things that, for instance, we don't all, people, Bible-believing people don't all agree on. You know, you, I understand, come from a Roman Catholic tradition. I do. Yeah. You've got actually a different Bible than the one that I grew up with. Well, you know, I, it, the Protestants can use the Bible that they choose, right? And <laughs> and I'll use the Bible that God wants me to use. That's how I say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a joke for all the <laughs> Protestant <laughs> listeners. That's a joke. Well, I would like to suggest that God didn't want you to have such a big Bible, Rob. <laughs> God really was looking for the smaller, honed-down Bible. Not quite as well, anyway, yes. Of course, so the Roman Catholic um, tradition embraces, accepts as authoritative text, a whole lot more text than the Protestant tradition. And we know that Christians, the Christian Bible, is longer still than the Jews' Bible, which is, of course, the start of it all for all of us. That is, we Christians base ours on the Jewish Bible. So anyway, I think that these um, these things, these strangenesses about the Bible and in the Bible can be a wonderful thing. And we all know anybody who's read the Bible is going to stumble pretty quickly on things that make <laughs> give them pause. And yet we, yes, have long been sort of 
trained to think that we shouldn't say that we shouldn't see those things that you know there are a different order of creating human beings and animals for instance in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 and 3 and I could go on but anyway so wow you got me started with an open question (laughs) I I could take the hour unpacking well yes and uh they don't get any easier, Dr. Swenson, so, or Kristen, sorry. <laughs> All right, well, let's stick with that one. Maybe. Okay, we'll stick with that one. Well, the Bible was written by different authors, different literary styles over the course of hundreds of years. So what's the best way, and how do you do it for your students to describe the origins of the Bible? Well, one is to do some of what you just did. That is, note that it grew up over a long period of time, and that those texts come from times and places long, far away from ours now. So I actually usually start my classes by talking about three different methods of uh, interpretation that people tend to use. So in teaching the Bible, my, my experience of teaching the Bible is primarily within um, the context of a secular university. So I'm not, I am not beholden to any faith tradition as far as the institution goes out of which I teach. But instead, I am committed to teaching information about. And it doesn't matter. My students come from all different walks of life and all different religious traditions, and many of them don't ascribe to any particular religion at all. And so I'm teaching information about the Bible. So I talk about three general methods of interpretation. One of them I call the divine oracle paradigm. I'm borrowing, actually, and I can't remember. Honestly, I can't remember. I've been doing this so long. I can't remember who came up with this language. This is not my language. But this divine oracle paradigm supposes that the Bible came from God, like was handed directly from God to human beings. Its meaning is immediately evident. It's a kind of a rule book of how God wants us to be and how the world came into being. And it's crystal clear, and we all agree on what it means, and all we have to do is read it, and then we understand it. And I ask my students to look around the room and note that not everyone will have come from exactly the same faith perspective. That method of interpretation presumes that we all agree on exactly who and what God is, and exactly how then to read the Bible as, as persons engaging with it. And it just doesn't work in that kind of a context. This divine oracle paradigm can't work in the context of our academic inquiry. So I invite them to consider these other two general methods of interpretation. One of them is the literary critical method, which recognizes that this is a text. And you ask questions of it as a text. So you ask, you know, the kinds of things you just did. Where did it come from? How does the text work as text? And so, is this a poem that you're reading? Is it a story that you're reading? Is it a law that you're reading, genealogy? So, what kind of a text is it? Where is the text in relation to other texts? And so on. These are the kinds of questions that you ask as a literary critic. Another method is an historical critical method. And I reassure them that critical doesn't mean that you think it's a bad thing, but instead it's just a method of inquiry. And the historical critical method asks three kinds of questions about history. One of them is the history in the text, that is what the text says happened. The history of the text, 
how the text came to be and the history behind the text. That is, what is the historical context, the culture, the place out of which those texts come? And each of those, of course, can be divided into subclasses of <laughs> historical criticism. But those are uh, semester-long classes, each one of those questions, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I think it situated us on a path of inquiry that enabled us to get somewhere with reason and study and information about, rather than having it be a kind of let's pull our chairs around in a circle and talk about God, what you believe God wants you to do out of this text. So yeah, I find that to be a useful way to get started in asking information about the text. And again, it doesn't matter what you believe. If you believe anything, if you're a person of you know, for whom the Bible is your Bible, this is your authoritative text, this is the Word of God, you still ask those questions. These are the kinds of things that folks study in seminary context, training for Christian ministry, for Jewish ministry. But they also are the kinds of questions you ask if you're just learning about any, well, any text, but any, any class of the Bible should be asking information about it. <laughs> Because you have several authors and there are different points of view for each one of those authors, I guess unless you had the initial perspective that it's handed down, so no matter who the author is, they're getting God's perspective. But if we take the idea that there are several different authors with different perspectives, there has to be contradictions, and your book brings out some of these. What are the major contradictions that you think are important to recognize to help a person better understand the Bible? Well, one of them is to do what you did, that is recognize that the Bible comes to us through human hands. So you may be a person who believes this is the Word of God, this is divinely inspired, it is from God. Then you can still accept and recognize that that came through human hands. And in the course of that, it was a messy process in a lot of ways. We can see that evidence in the kind of archaeology of the text, if you will, which um, linguists have been unpacking as well as archaeologists, we can see one of the things I think is so important is to see the fact that we have different sources, we sometimes call them, we don't know exactly who or where or when from where they came behind the text in the first five books, for instance. Those sources were at some point woven together by yet another party or group. It may have been a person, maybe probably more a group. But recognizing that enables you to appreciate why there would be some differences, like you said. So, for example, you read the first few chapters of Genesis, just the first few chapters, only a few pages, and you get a very clear sense of this. So in Genesis chapter 1, you have a story of the creation of the world, and it is a tidy narrative. It's a very well-ordered text, that first chapter. So the division into chapters and verses in the Bible actually is also quite late. That is like, I don't know, into the hundreds of the common era. So anyway, that's what's an artificial ordering system that is. But you read what is now Genesis chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2, and you see a story of the creation of the world in seven days. And there is 
a kind of repetitive nature to it. It's really a beautiful piece of text. And in it, God creates the world out of speech. God speaks the world into being. And it's very elegant, and it all happens very easily and smoothly. But then in Genesis chapter 2, starting in what is now a verse 4, you have a whole different tone. You have a story of creation that is, and it, and it begins with a kind of lack of things, a lack of growth. In this case, it's described as on account of there not being enough water around. And then you get this narrative in which God has a somewhat different name, for one thing, than the God of Genesis chapter 1. You have Yahweh Elohim in chapter 2, where you had Elohim in chapter 1. And so you get a little different moniker for God if you're paying attention reading. And some of these things, again, we read with modern eyes, so we tend to smooth over things, so even subconsciously. But if you read closely, you see here we have a different name, moniker for God. And then God actually makes the world by fashioning with God's hands, and God walks around and speaks. And so, like to the human beings that God creates. So you have this anthropomorphic God, a very earthy God. And the tone of that whole story is much Earthier. God makes the human being out of fashion, the human being out of Adama, which is the, a Hebrew word for land or earth or soil, and fashions Adam, which incidentally is not a proper name in Hebrew. It's not necessarily the name Adam, but it is a generic noun meaning human being or humankind. It can also be specifically a man, a male human being. But it doesn't, it doesn't have to be. And in the story, you have Yahweh Elohim fashioning Adam out of Adama. So you have this intimate connection between the human being and humus, if you will, earth out of which God creates the human being. And that intimate association with the stuff, the earthiness of life is very much uh, saturates that story. And in that story, you have this ordering of the creatures, if you will, or the animals are created after Adam. Whereas in the Genesis chapter 1, Adam is created after the animals. And in that first narrative, Adam is created in the image of Elohim, the image of God, as male and female simultaneously. So you also have a disconnect between the kind of chronology of gender, if you will, in the creation story that I sometimes call the, the Garden of Eden creation story, that's Genesis chapters two and three, you have Adam all by Adam's lonesome. Literally, God says it's not so good that Adam is alone, because he recognizes this like God is sort of learning as God goes. <laughs> Very different than the image of God in Genesis chapter one. In the Garden of Eden story, God recognizes the loneliness, if you will, of Adam and first parades the animals in front of Adam to see if there might be a partner like unto Adam that could be a companion, but there wasn't. So again, a sort of trial and error creation story. <laughs> and then you get this story of God 
Yahweh Elohim putting Adam to sleep, sort of anesthetizing Adam, and out of Adam creating Isha and Isha, man and woman. So it's only actually at that point that you have a very gender-specific Adam, man and woman. But we lose that in our English translation, especially English translations that use capital A, Adam, presuming that the first human being created was a guy named Adam um, who lived in Eden. <laughs> Anyways. It's easier to understand than the really complex <laughs> description of having a, a being of man and woman or two genders together. And yes, it's, it's much easier to understand. So true. But in a little tougher subject, there are some disturbing aspects in the Bible and passages. What are some that you focused on in your book? Well, one I mentioned earlier is the requirement to kill all the people who lived in the land of Canaan, if you will, so that the Hebrews could take it and become Israelites and make it Israel, land, uh, promised land as they understood to have been promised to them by God. It's part of the longer narrative. Out of Exodus comes this people who are uh, the people of this particular God, who understand this land, who are, as the narrative unspools, uh, understand this land to have been given to them by God, and that God requires that they kill the people there and take it for their own. It's disturbing if we take it as some kind of mandate. This is how European settlers understood themselves when they came to the United States, well, before it was the United States, but came to this country, understood themselves to be the new Israel. And I live in Virginia, and some of our streets still reflect this ideology that they were coming to take this land from the savages, the non-God-worshipping pagans who were to be exterminated or driven out in order that they settle this land. It was very clearly an interpretation of that biblical text. Now, I maintain that I, I don't want to get rid of that from the Bible. The Bible is, is a messy text, but I do argue that we should, we should read it differently than as a kind of rule book that we follow with no critical thinking of our own. That the Bible disagrees with itself is its own argument for doing what I'm talking about. That is thinking for ourselves and sometimes saying, no, I don't think that's how we should be. Yes, that's in the text. But no, that's not how we should be. <laughs> so this is a very different way of treating the Bible, I recognize, than we have been sort of taught to do, but I am excited by the recognition of the Bible's strangenesses as a kind of, not even a kind of, but as a kind of <laughs> demand that we use our intelligence, we, we bring our own selves to this text with our own brains and our own hearts, and we engage both intelligently and with compassion these texts as we wrestle with them, and in our wrestling, figure um, best ways to be in the world. And I think that's a very, that seems to me to be a God-speaking thing 
anyway, I think we lose when we treat the Bible as this kind of frozen document in which God is telling us, shaking God's finger at us to say, this is how you should be. Figure it out. Now do that thing. Those strangeness is, is that, is that even a word? <laughs> strangeness is. <laughs> well, I'm using it all the time. Oddities. <laughs> the oddities. <laughs> yeah. The oddities in yeah. the Bible. Yeah. The thing about it is if, if those who don't want any criticism of the Bible because of their interpretation of it. So any criticism is an attack on their belief system. So they either brush aside or can contextualize the problematic aspects of the Bible. On the other hand, those who are atheists, for example, they focus on those problematic aspects of the Bible, and then they disregard the entire text. Exactly. So I think on both cases, the oddities need to be brought out and understood so we have a fuller understanding of what the Bible means. Yes, you're getting at exactly what has motivated me with this. I would like for believers to embrace these oddities as one truism. <laughs> They're there. You know? Right, yes. <laughs> and honor that they are there. Embrace them as them opportunities to, and as express invitation to think for ourselves and to engage with those texts and with one another in conversation about them and trust that in the course of that wrestling, we will come to an even better place in whatever it is, our interpretation of that text. Although I, I, I think sometimes we can interpret a text, we, we can, well, I guess, what does it mean to interpret a text? Is it to figure out what that text means to say to us that we then do? Or is it to ask all of the different sides and angles of the ways that it could mean? And in the course of that asking and our own bringing our own humanity to that inquiry, we unpack what maybe is a good and positive way forward in the world. We probably have to look at specific texts in order to really exemplify what I mean by that. But you're right about the other piece of this that has kind of gotten under my craw, and that is that people, because these are, because it is a truism that the Bible has oddities, disagreements, for example, within it, that has given justification for some people to dismiss it out of hand. And I think, no, 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 don't be so quick. I think on the contrary, again, those things that give us pause are reasons for us to more closely um, wrestle with it and take it seriously because it's asking something of us. It's asking us to think. It's asking us to feel. It's asking us to bring our humanity to this text for ourselves in our own places rather than to assume that it's a, you know fixed in amber, dead, and, yeah, infallible. You know, back to the literary styles, I'm wondering... You've studied this a good portion of your life, I'm assuming. Yeah. But are there cases in the Bible where it is clear that it's satirical or they're using humor? Because that can cause a level of confusion and problem as well. Yes. Oh, I think so. I think about um, the book of Jonah, for example, which is in the collection of prophets. He was himself a prophet. So some of the books titles are the names of the people in them, if you will. 
those titles come late as well. Anyway, the book of Jonah is really short, the quick read, and it clearly falls into two halves. So again, it's just this literary structure is very clear. And it tells the story of this Hebrew prophet who is commissioned by God to deliver a message. So, so far, so good. This is the way all the other Hebrew prophets operate. And God calls a person to speak to a particular time and place out of God's word to a particular time and place. And a lot of the prophets, as the the text that we have now, and again, this is something, a function of the ways that they have come down to us and some of the changes that have happened along the way. But a lot of them are begging people to change their ways, to turn aside from the particular course of action they're on and return to God, whatever that means. Jeremiah is a great example of this. And these prophets work really hard. They have lots to say to try to get people to change their ways. So God commissions Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, which was the like arch enemy of the Israelites at this point. And they were, it was the big bully on the block in the ancient Near East at that time. Assyria was a huge nation and was demolishing other countries, and it did to the northern kingdom of Israel. But anyway, that's another story. So Jonah's told to go to prophesy against the people of Nineveh. Because they were, of course, going the wrong way. So this is what prophets did, right? And Jonah says, no thanks. And he decides to run in the opposite direction. He gets on a ship to go in the opposite direction. So already we have like a reader or a hearer would be, would be going, what? Wait a minute. What's <laughs> happening in this story? And then we read that on this ship, it's populated by all these foreigners. And Jonah comes to understand that the storm that has befallen them is the doing of God. And he tells these fellow mariners that they have to throw him overboard if they want the storm to end. And they resist this. And now we have this picture of foreign people as much more compassionate, if you will, than our Hebrew prophet, who was supposed to do this thing for the Ninevites, but he turned his back on it. And they also actually pray to God, though we were already told that they're foreigners. They pray to Jonah's God. So we get this really, again, a reader or hearer would be saying, what is happening in this story? And then, as you know, as I think your, your, your listeners know, Jonah gets swallowed by what is usually tra- translated as a whale. <laughs> a big fish. And right, like, okay, now you've got, right, you're chuckling. It's got, it's got to elicit a chuckle. It had to have elicited a chuckle from its earliest listeners or readers, because it's preposterous. And Jonah not only is swallowed by this fish, but he he's, exists in this fish for three days. And within the belly of the fish, he sings hymns to God. It's like, <laughs> this is so hilarious at this point, right? <laughs> and then he is vomited up unscathed to go about his merry way again to be a prophet of God. And so the humor in this book is, is astonishing. There's so many aspects, and that's just the first half. And then, of course, Jonah goes to Nineveh finally, having done so grudgingly, and delivers his oracle, that is the speech he gives to the Ninevites, which is one line long, where all the other prophets, their books are like pages and pages and pages, and they go on and on and on trying to get people to change their wicked ways. And Jonah essentially mutters under his breath, 
you know, three days and then it'll be overturned, you know, if they don't change their ways. <laughs> and then they all do. They're like, oh, we feel so bad. And now we're going to, we're certainly going to turn to God now. And they all do. And not only is that they do, but the very end of the book, I just love this. Um, all the cattle, all the cattle don sackcloth as well, which is a sign of mourning and repentance. Of course. So all their animals are <laughs> repenting. And so they repent right down to the animals. This is so over the top. And then at the very end, the line that God delivers, which is just such a coup de grace, is how much God could care for all these other people, even the enemy, right? Even the Assyrians and all of their animals, too. I just love that. I love animals. So <laughs> that the whole book is hilarious. And surely it would have been considered humorous to its earliest audiences. But we are we're sort of programmed to approach the Bible with this level of piety that yeah, reverence forbids them. Yeah. yeah. Not to accept even the satire in it or even the humor in it because <laughs> we're not allowed to do that. Yes. Yeah. And again, I mean, I just think that we are doing the Bible a disservice. We're missing it when we miss what it's handing to us. These opportunities to question, to debate, to argue, and also opportunities to laugh. Yeah. So it's almost 100 degrees here today. It's very hot. So I'm going to ask the Christmas question then. So. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, do. Let's bring me to the snow, please. So is there an, any inherent strangeness, in your opinion, to the nativity story? Well, yeah. Okay, so good stuff in the nativity story. For one thing. Yes, of course. <laughs> right. Lots of it. For one thing, it isn't in every of the Gospels. So once again, undermining our efforts to make the Bible say only one thing, it has four stories of Jesus, you know, of Jesus' life. And so on, just right on the surface, it couldn't hardly be clearer that it is asking us to think and appreciate multiple voices, right? And not every one of them has the nativity story, a nativity story in it, the earliest gospel in terms of the chronology of authorship, we're quite confident it's the gospel of Mark. The first one you encounter when you're flipping pages through the Bible is Matthew, but Mark, um, and Mark doesn't have a nativity story at all. You jump right into an adult Jesus getting baptized by John. But yeah, Matthew has a really great lead up to the nativity story with this genealogy in which you have four women noted, and they're the, the only four women in this long genealogy who get play, are all women with kind of questionable sexual backgrounds, <laughs> which is great, because then you get to marry, right, the mother of Jesus, and she's in good company, this virgin birth business. But I think that's really interesting in and of itself. And then, yeah, you have different nativity stories in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, which are the best known. And neither one has both the shepherds and the magi. But stay to kind of the general character of each of those Gospels, which is kind of cool when you start recognizing different characteristics. And then in the Gospel of John, you have this kind of a kind of sort of mystery. It's got a very different tone than... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptic gospels, 
which means etymologically to see together, together sin, optic to see, because they share a lot in common. And the general thinking in scholarship is that Mark existed earliest and that both the authors, if you will, of Matthew and Luke had Mark to hand when they were developing their Gospels. And they also had another source in common that we don't have anymore. This theory came from the Germans, and so the word they use is Quelle, which means source in German, and it's abbreviated Q. But anyway, I digress. But the Gospel of John is very different again, and that clearly, though, reflects Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, that creation of the world in seven days, in which God speaks the world into being. In John, it's wonderful. You have this origin of Jesus that is tied to logos, which is the Greek word for word. And of course, it's the word, if you will, the speech of God that brings the world into being in Genesis chapter one. So you have the cadence, the cadence of the literature is basically echoes Genesis chapter one in the first chapter of the gospel of John. I'm sort of digressing, but yeah, so you have these very different stories of beginnings for Jesus, even, within the Christian canon. As I look through the Bible, there, and I'm going to tie two questions. I had two questions I was going to ask about transfiguration and then the resurrection, but I think they're kind of tied. So I'll just throw them in together. Many people who do not even read the Bible, some atheists, can see value, at least, in the teachings of Jesus, but the resurrection— or I guess would be transfiguration before that, would be a bridge just way too far for them. What does the Bible actually say about the divinity of Jesus? Oh, that's such a good question. An easy question for you. That's an <laughs> easy question for right. you. Right. <laughs> well, the fact that, that I pause and that you chuckle in asking the question reflects how problematic it is, that it's not so clear-cut as we might suppose, given Christian tradition. Actually, I would love to recommend to your listeners some of the work of Bart Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N, who uh, I think is his book, How Jesus Became God, is a really wonderful kind of unpacking of that trajectory of the divinity of Jesus as it evolved within that early Christian community. But yeah, back to so resurrection is a real, um, it's a challenging piece for a lot of Christians as well, because of course it defies a lot. Christian, Christian tradition tends to require that, or there's an understanding supposition that you accept this very unnatural transformation from corpse into living being again as a bodily resurrection of Jesus. And even the text, they don't spell that out precisely, but they certainly do. In the Gospels, you do have these stories of Jesus appearing to the disciples after his death, of the empty tomb uh, that the women discover. And so it has to be a part of the Christian tradition, but exactly how one must reconcile that with 
their identity as a Christian. I leave up to the individual myself. I have some wonderful close, close friends who are very clearly identify themselves as Christian, who claim they do not need to accept for themselves this like historical bodily resurrection to identify as uh, Christian believers in a rich and ever-changing Christian faith. So, yeah, I don't know. That probably doesn't work in your Catholic background. <laughs> no, no. That, you know, that, of course, there's certain things that you have to accept. Uh, you know, that's definitely the case. You know, but we'd always, there's these challenges, even George Carlin, who, you know, he grew up Catholic and then (laughs) ended up an atheist. (laughs) He would say when, just jokingly, of course, that when they were kids, they would say, if God's all powerful, could he build a rock that's so heavy that he himself could not lift it? Right, right. (laughs) You know, little questions like that. So you can question the faith, definitely. (laughs) There's no, there's no doubt about that. So a little lighter question. What's the absolute weirdest passage in the Bible? Is it the talking donkey of Balaam, or <laughs> which one is it? Oh, I do love that. Back to the animals. I don't know. I think it would depend on my mood, how I would answer that. But yeah, you brought up the talking donkey, which appears in the book of Numbers in the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament. That, yeah, that is a, that's a winner. Well, that, <laughs> and we've got the talking snake in the Garden of Eden. But we kind of, again, I think we know the story or we've heard it so many times. We know that story. Yes, that one's a little easier to... Yeah, we sort of <laughs> guess that, how weird it is that the snake talks. And also that the snake then is cursed with crawling around on its belly. So as I note in the book, you've got this supposition then that the snake might have had legs. <laughs> and in a lot of medieval art, you have pictures of the snake with legs. Maybe the Bible was describing dinosaurs, and <laughs> we just don't accept it. Oh, man. Yeah, you won't be the first one to have suggested it. I think this, yeah, I know you're kidding. Yes. But there is a serious effort to kind of reconcile everything in the Bible in a sort of literal way with what we know from science. Sure, yes, absolutely. And again, I think it's such a, it's such a, mistreatment of the biblical text. It's like a an impoverishing of the biblical text to force them to be something that they're not. They don't purport to be science texts. I mean, you have a talking donkey for crying out loud. <laughs> so did Shrek. <laughs> so back to that, yeah. And another funny thing about that is, yeah, the guy riding him, when the donkey speaks, doesn't say, oh my gosh, you're a talking donkey. But instead um, sort of engages with it. So yeah, it gets into an argument with him, I think. <laughs> yes, yes. It reminds me of a joke my husband told me in which these two racehorses are talking after a race and one of them says to the other, you know, oh, the winner said, you know, yeah, before I ran that race, I felt this kind of sting in my, uh, back in my flank. And <laughs> The other horse who had won the earlier race said, you know, I felt that before the race I won. And this dog has been overhearing the conversation. And the dog says, you idiots, you guys were doped. And the horses look at each other and they say, weird, talking dog. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. We think weird, talking donkey, and we accept the talking snake. Yeah, sure, right. (laughs) 
<laughs> Just a, a few more questions. Many people read the Bible every day and they let it guide their life. A few strange stories and oddities aren't going to change their opinion on that or, or the fact that they use the Bible. What's your advice to them? Those that are going to use the Bible and read it every day, what's your advice to them so they can better understand some of these oddities? They don't have to brush it away. They can just accept it. You know, do you have any advice in that regard? I do. And so far as I applaud efforts to, let's say, use the Bible for one's life. But the way one does that is where the rubber hits the road. I would ask in any case that someone apply, again, their intellect, all the learning they have in their life and can bring to bear, and their whole heart and compassion to their interpretation of any text and how they would use it in their lives. So, in other words, some texts you might be able to pluck right out of the Bible, and they would lead you to actions that are life-giving and affirming and humble and kind and sustainable or contribute to a sustainable and healthy world. More power to you do that. <laughs> but I just urge folks to read with their whole selves, recognizing that there are these examples of the Bible's requiring you to do that. So when you run across those oddities and strangenesses, those disagreements, to embrace them as reminders that you ought be bringing your whole intellect, your whole self to this endeavor of understanding or applying to your life, rather than assuming that to apply it means a kind of literalistic slapping onto the surface of your life, whatever you may have read at first glance. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I'd like to, I like to always keep these lighthearted and, and I like people's books to, to shine through and I want people to get them and read them and so forth. But from my perspective, the challenge that I always run into is God has given us free will and power of, of our minds and of our hearts emotions, not just of our intellect. Mm -hmm. And this idea of, you know, I'll just use a Carrie Underwood song, like Jesus take the wheel. I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. It's basically relinquishing all of what the gifts that you've been given, if you believe in God, and you've given all of those away and you're going to let God make all the decisions when you've been given the capacity to handle these issues, especially if they're issues that humans have created. Yeah. That would be my only caution that maybe you have the power to fix some of these things and not to put on my historian hat and quote JFK, but JFK has a great quote. Yeah. And he says, our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man. And if we rely on something else to solve our problems, we're missing out on the fact that we have the capacity to do that. Yeah. We have the intellect and the emotional ability to do that. Yes. And I would push it even farther to say the Bible tells you, take the wheel. No, take the wheel. <laughs> the Bible says, no, think for yourself. Act out of all the intelligence you can bring to bear. Yeah, I, I think the Bible pushes us, but it puts us back in the driver's seat. It pushes us back again to think for ourselves. Well, the Bible tells me this. No, 
you have to tell yourself <laughs> based on all the thinking you may do. I mean, the Bible is a wonderful tool and inspiration for thinking, for inquiry, for debate. And that's a hugely valuable thing. And you could say God's involved in that. So yeah, I've, I'm, I'm back at you, Rob, and then some with, yeah, I think God would say, or Jesus would say, take the wheel. You're right, behind yeah. it. <laughs> I know you. that's a platinum record, Carrie, but <laughs> take the wheel. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we want, as human beings, to take an easy way. You know, we want it to be easy. I want it to be easy. I don't want to have to make hard decisions. Sure. But I think the Bible keeps forcing us to do that by virtue of having these strangenesses from the fact that it comes to most readers today in translation, right? So the Bible, if you're reading it in English, you're reading already someone's interpretation of the text. (laughs) So it's already, it's ancient and it disagrees with itself. And um, and it has these strange things that that are exciting for us to grapple with, get into, and take charge, yeah, of our own thinking. And the last thing I'll do is I'll I'll share my favorite passage of the Bible. Yeah, to me is the prodigal son. I just love that story. Oh, it is a beautiful story. That's my favorite. A sort of similar story that I also love, and it's actually not even a whole story. It's just a moment in um, Genesis where, remember how Jacob and Esau brothers were estranged because of Jacob's stealing what belonged to Esau, the inheritance, right? And Esau was furious with him, and that's why Jacob had to hightail it, right? And he was gone for years. But when he returned, Esau embraces him, runs to him and embraces him. And I don't remember all the details of that moment, but in, in the Hebrew, how um, the precision of the language, but it's clearly a reconciliatory moment of forgiveness that's really beautiful. So the last question I have for you, it's probably the easiest one. So I'm just wondering which you prefer. What is more mystical and interesting, Jacob's Ladder or Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven? <laughs> <laughs> Can they maybe be both? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have it both ways? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Rob, so fun to visit with you, and we could go on and on. There are so many wonderful things to unpack within the Bible itself, and then the ways that we are to be in relation to those strange things is yet another Well, you know, it's inherent in who we are. You know, you said the inherent strangeness of the Bible. People are inherently strange. I want to thank you once again. The book is excellent, a most peculiar book, your book and the Bible as well. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. I would like to thank my guest today, religious studies author and researcher, Dr. Kristen Swenson. And if you would like to get her book, a most peculiar book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible, just click on the link in the description below. The featured brew was Experience Paradise American IPA from the Holy City Brewery of North Charleston, South Carolina. If you liked our talk today, please share this episode with a friend. And remember to subscribe to the podcast, as we mentioned before. It's the only way to get the newest episodes right away. 
And for more information on episodes, topics, and authors, like the History of Go-Go Facebook page. The music was provided by the great North Carolina band Bones Fork. And if you want to know what they have going on, just click on their link. It's in the description below as well. Once again, thank you to all the listeners and supporters. If you have a suggestion for a topic or an author, just leave a message on the History of Go-Go Facebook page. There are many more great episodes on the way. So join us again next time when we talk, think, and drink on History of Go-Go. I used to be Irish Catholic. Now I'm an American. You know, you grow. Yeah. I was from one of those Irish neighborhoods in New York, one of those kind of uh, parish schools. It wasn't typical. It was Corpus Christi was the name of it. It could have been any Catholic church, right? Our Lady of Great Agony. St. <laughs> Rita Moreno. Our Lady of Perpetual Motion. What's the difference? What's the cause? The church part and the neighborhood part were typical, but the school was not. It wasn't one of those old-fashioned parish kind of prison schools with a lot of corporal punishment and systemary discipline with the steel ruler, right? Oh, my hand! Ah! And you'd fall two years behind in penmanship, right? At least behind in penmanship, Mrs. Carlin. I don't know why. He's crippled. He's trying to learn to write with his left hand. We didn't have that. We got, somehow I got lucky, you know, got into a, a school where the pastor was uh, kind of into John Dewey and progressive education, and he talked the parish, uh, talked the diocese, rather, into, uh, into experimenting in our parish with progressive education and whipping the religion on us anyway and see what would happen with the two of them there. And uh, worked out kind of nice. There was a lot of classroom freedom. There was no, uh, for instance, there were no grades or marks, you know, no report cards to sweat out or any of that. Uh, there were no uniforms. There were no, there was no sexual segregation, boys and girls together, and the desks weren't all nailed down in a row, you know. They were movable desks, and you had new friends every month. It was nice. Like I say, a lot of classroom freedom. In fact, there was so much freedom that by eighth grade, many of us had lost the faith. Because <laughs> they made questioners out of us, and uh, they really didn't have any answers, you know. They'd fall back on, well, it's a mystery. <laughs> oh, thank you, Father. Mystery? I don't know. What's he talking about? mystery. Part of class clown was being an imitator, as you probably noticed, but I used to imitate the priests, which was right on the verge of blasphemy, you know. <laughs> I could do them all rather well. I did Father Byrne the best. Father Byrne was the uh, one who used to celebrate the children's mass. Oh, said that was great, celebrate mass. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no. Father Byrne did the children's mass, did the sermon every week. He used to do parables about Dusty and Buddy. Dusty was a Catholic, and Buddy was not. <laughs> and Buddy was always trying to talk Dusty into having a hot dog on Friday. <laughs>